Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Okay, so Vian, come stand here in the front. Um, Vian is um, the pastor in Shofar Secunda. He took over from Varys and... Uh, yeah, no one thought he'd be able to fill that celebrity shoes, but he's been doing pretty well. <laughs> he's been doing pretty well. And uh, Vian is a, is a bit of an enigma because um, you, you can't really tell when he's serious and when he's joking, or, or at least I can't. <laughs> I don't know if Robin can, but I, I usually can't tell when he's serious and when he's joking. But, but he's, he's very good at being serious and he's very good at, at joking. And uh, he, he really loves the Lord, he loves God's word, and he loves God's people. So let's just open up our hearts to receive from him. Father, we, we just want to thank you, Father, for Vian, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for everything that you've done in his life. Thank you, Lord, that, that you are the one who lifted him up out of the miry clay, Lord, out of addiction and all kinds of, Lord, a mess of a life, Lord God. And you saved him, Lord, and you, you um, turned him into an ambassador for Christ, Lord, an example for many, Lord God. And we just pray your blessing over him, Lord God. And we just open up our hearts to receive from you through him in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Vian. Thank you so much, Henny. Uh, yeah, it's true. Like Henny said, uh, many of the people in our congregation, they tell the new people, especially coming in, uh, don't believe him except if he has a mic in his hand. So I have a mic in my hand now, so you're supposed to believe what I'm saying. Uh, you don't have to go and obviously look at scripture and all of that. Just trust me from the beginning. Um, just making a joke. Obviously go back to scripture and, and see what's going on there. Because I'm also going to speak a little bit about Jeremiah 29 that you guys have been busy with in the last while. And as I was also busy listening to the sermons, I just thought to myself, sure, uh, a lot of stuff that needs to be corrected today. So I'm going to do my best. <laughs> no, I'm just, just making a joke. But before I make too many jokes, let me pray for us. And then we dive in. Yes, Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. And, yeah, Lord, thank you, Father, for salvation, Lord, for each and every one of us, Lord, that you saved us, Lord. And today, Lord, we pray that as we look, Father, at your word, Lord, and what you expect of us, Lord, that none of us, Father, no matter how long we think we've been serving you, Lord, and no matter how long we think we've been in church, may we never assume salvation. May we never jump past, Lord, that saving grace, Lord, and try hard to do things on our own, but we pray for grace, Lord, that you would enable, Father, and you do not expect of us, Lord, to be perfect this morning, Father, but you do expect of us to be truthful. We cannot bring pure hearts, Lord, but we can bring true hearts, and we pray, Lord, that as we bring them, Father, you would mold, refine, and compel, Lord, hearts to action. And thank you, Lord, for my own salvation, Father, as any also just shared, Lord, through a lot of wrong ways of living, Father, you came and redeemed me, Lord. But also pray this morning, Father, for a lot of people, Father, that did the right things, Lord, but for the wrong reasons. And many times, Lord, when we come to salvation, we think that those areas where we seemingly did the right things, nothing need to change. But we pray, Lord, that not only our actions, but our desires and our thoughts would align with the gospel. We thank you for your goodness, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, our title is Prayer and Sanctification. A sanctification of the heart. Prayer and Sanctification, a sanctification of the heart. And like I said, we're going to look at Jeremiah 29, that you've been busy with the last while, but mainly just focus on two verses, verse 12 and verse 13. And then also just a small portion of Zechariah 13 that we're also going to look at. And Zechariah 13 is about 20 years after the Israelites are back in Israel. They finished their exile in Babylon and God has brought them back to their own land. And 20 years later, they are again busy doing the same stuff. 
that caused them to be exiled in the first place. And I remember, you know, as walking through these pieces of scripture and seeing how the Israelites act in this continuous cycle of things that repeat throughout the Old Testament, going to my wife and telling her, can you believe this? <laughs> 20 years later, and they are back at it. And she says, yes, that sounds like us. With us, she was referring to her and a group of friends. It wasn't, you know, me specifically. You know, last week at church, she also said we were busy with the relationship series in, in church. And she also said afterwards with ministry after worship, you know, sit fast. It was at the morning service. Uh, we sit fast. Now, in English, that's translated, you know, to fight a little bit. But I just explained also that it's not what she means. When we sit fast, it's when there's load shedding and the gates don't open. Then we're stuck inside. She, did, she didn't mean it in that way. That you think she meant it. Uh, because obviously we, we are holy people and preaching and stuff, so we don't, you know, all of that other stuff, we, we don't do that. We've heard of it, but haven't experienced. But she says, yeah, that sounds like us. That, that kind of sounds like us. You know, Afrikaans... When we refer to humanity, it's men's dom. It's needy men's slim. Roughly translated into English, it's human stupid. If you take those two words and you literally translate them, human stupid. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, we don't get this and we struggle a lot. And we seemingly fall into this constant habits again and again. And many times the reason for it is that we primarily want to go to action. When something's wrong, when something's out of line with God's word, we think, okay, man, we better do the right thing now. Instead of asking, but why didn't we start off with? What's wrong? If the light's not going on, it's because the batteries aren't inserted. And you can press the buttons as long as you want to, as hard as you want to. The lights are not going to come on. Unless the batteries are in, or unless they insert it in the right way. And the same thing is, is true here. And there's a lot of stuff that we can learn from this context and this passage of Scripture. But initially we see as they go into this exile that there arose a false prophet called Hananiah. And he says, no, you won't be there 70 years, you'll only be there two years. And the people rejoice because they hear what they want to hear. And that's the problem with false teaching, false prophets. So they preach a message that we want to hear because we are human stupid. We need to accept that. We need to understand that there's something inside of us wants to believe the lie. Something inside of me wants this world to revolve around me. And that's why I have an inclination to believe the lie, to follow that which is false. And the Israelites rejoice and they cry out to God and they shout to God, yes, this is going to happen. And we need to understand that the initial, as they go into exile, the initial cry to God, the initial prayer alive that starts to be revived again, reveals something about their hearts. But then Jeremiah comes and says, no, this prophet is lying, and to show that he will die soon, and he does die, and he says, you'll be here for 70 years. And as God lovingly brings this circumstance across the Israelites' path, as they continually cry out to God, their hearts are refined. And at the end, the effect is what God intends it to be. And we're going to look at that right now as well. But before we jump in, I want to ask us a couple of questions about our own prayer life. And the first one is, why do you pray? Why do you pray? Just there where you're sitting, just genuinely answer the question. Why do you pray? And some of us might say, yeah, because God says so. And well, that's a good answer. It really is. If we base all of our lives just simply on that, we do stuff because God says so, then we'll do fairly well. And it's a good answer. And in our Western culture, the answers that we many times get as to why we need to pray or why people do pray 
It's because, yes, God said so, but because, you know, I need to inform God about the things that I need. I need to inform God about how I feel. There's this beautiful passage of Scripture that says that if I pray to God about everything, then I'll receive peace. Peace that surpasses all understanding. And I want to make sure that I live out what God has intended for me to do. And all of them write answers, but just in the one aspect. And very soon we deduce that the aim of prayer is the comfort of man, because it revolves around us. And the goal of prayer is not the comfort of man, but the mission of God. Lord, your will be done. Lord, your kingdom come. And yes, there's supplication. And yes, there's thanksgiving. And yes, there's repentance. That's about our own lives. But most of it needs to be about God, about who He is and what He wants to accomplish. And when we answer these questions, it will reveal something about our hearts. Maybe another question, what do you pray for most? What do you pray for most? If you have to kind of divide up your prayer life and go and write it down on a little notepad and put percentages at the end of each subject, how would that percentages look like? Who do you pray for most? And as that waiting and dating slide was up, some of us have been praying most for a person we've never met yet. Yeah? <laughs> Lord, send them. That future husband or wife. But what do you pray for most? Who do you pray for most? And maybe if you look back at your life... When did you pray the most? What circumstance, what thing that you were facing or going through drove you to a place that you prayed more than you used to? When did you pray the least? Maybe you at that point at time just now. Actually now when I reflect at my current prayer life, there's not a lot going on. And that also reveals something about our heart. What we pray for, the lack of prayer. Something about our hearts will be revealed. And also why we pray and when we pray will also give us an indication of what we think the purpose of prayer is. Because that's when we use it. We have this stupid statement that we make. Sorry, there's no other word to use for it. But the only thing that we can do now is pray. Like, man, if we started there, we wouldn't maybe not have been here to start with and it reveals so much of what we believe we've tried everything in our own power and our own wisdom and our own resources let's try rub, rub the lamp see if the genie pops out and we know it's kind of a fairy tale but hey maybe this time we don't really believe that prayer works we don't have an understanding of what it actually accomplishes let's read through this passage of scripture and see what we can learn. Like I said, in the context, they initially cry out to God and that reveals their hearts. And as they continue, it refines their hearts. And at the end, we see what God intends to happen through this exile. Jeremiah 29 from verse 1 to 14. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles. And to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Yochanai and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. And the letter was sent by the hand of Eliza, the son of Zephan, the son of Gomeriah, the son of Hilkai, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply them, do not decrease, but seek the wealthy of the city where I've sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord in his behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to their dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, 
declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. And just to state that that word for the purpose statement is not just the previous verse. It's the context of the previous verse. It's not just when I come and take you to the land that this verse is true. The whole context, the whole reason for the exile, what I want to accomplish through this to refine you as a people, all of that is because I know the plans I have for you. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil. To give you future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations. And all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Interesting passage of scripture that you've gone through these last couple of months, illustrating to us the heart of man, but also the heart of God. And like I said, I just want to focus primarily on these two verses, verse 12 and verse 13. And note these two words here, the word then and the word when. Then. God's giving a, a purpose statement. This is what I want to accomplish. After all of this, my love being poured out on you. Now, that's the exile. The difficult times in life, the crushing, the pressing, when my love has fully manifested, and we can kind of translate it that way, then this will happen. Initially, you called out upon me, and it revealed a lot about your hearts. There's going to be a time of refining, and then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when. That word when can also be translated if. The Afrikaans us. It's a conditional statement. When you seek me with all your heart. This is what's going to happen at the end. It's going to happen in this way. When you seek me with all of your heart. And by definition, if God says to them, at the end when this process is completed, you will seek me with all of your hearts, he's saying that you are not doing that now. Very important to remember. You know, many times as Christians, we, we kind of look at Jesus. He comes and he wants to hand us something. As I say, bread or whatever the case might be. And we go, no, we, we, have, we have our own bread. It's not true. You might think you do, but you don't have it then. When Jesus comes and he says, I've come to give you hope, what does that mean? We don't have hope. And whatever thing we do have that gives us the false idea that we have hope, that's a lie. That's not true. It's not how it works. It's not how it looks like. When Jesus says, I come to give life, what does it mean? We don't have life. If he says, I come to give joy, what does that mean? We don't have joy. And when he says, then you will seek me with all of your heart, saying that you're not doing that at the moment. Yes, you are praying and there's something that's happening within you, but it's not a whole heart that is seeking me. It is something else. And God is saying, this is a pure heart, a heart drawing near. It's beautiful. In, in 2 Corinthians 11, it's this beautiful passage of Scripture, Paul writing to the Corinthian church, and he's saying, I betrothed you as a pure virgin to one man, to Jesus. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And this happens if someone comes and preaches another Jesus, another gospel, another spirit. Distorts the image of God, perverts the message of the gospel and the work of the spirit. But that word in verse 3, that sincere and pure devotion, it's the same thing that's lacking here. A sincere devotion, meaning without pretense. You're not seeking me for the things that I can give you. You're seeking me for who I am. Sincere. And it's pure, it's not divided, it's God alone. And here, it's not the case. It's a partial heart, a, a area of my life, a area of my heart is seeking God, not for who He is, but for what He can come and do. And in this specific context, it's to do what? It's to take me back. Not to the place I belong, to Jerusalem. They want to go back home. That's why they are crying out. Lord, we are not longing primarily for you, but please take us back to normal. And in this time of COVID and unrest that we've seen the last couple of years, 
A lot of people did the same. Man, we started to pray, but not so that we can be close to God, but God just restore normal. This isn't lacking anymore. We don't want to do this. And many times the same is true for the church when it comes to injustice. You know that injustice in general should provoke the church because it provokes God. And that is why we should pray about it. But today, the only time we get provoked because of injustice if it's when it's disturbing our comfort. There's always been corruption and all of that, and it's fine. We've never bothered to pray much, but now that it puts my lights off, man, it's irritating. <laughs> we better pray about this government now. <laughs> when it was someone else's lights, I'm okay with that. But these are my lights now. And there's puddles in my road now. And it's not injustice, just kind of irritating us because we know it irritates the one we serve. But it's because now it's disrupting my comfort. Now we need to pray. Now we need to do certain things. And that's not what God expects of the church. Yeah, and many times and in many different ways we've maybe been this person or we've maybe seen this person. But all of a sudden, man, someone just seems like something set them on fire. And you're like, man, revival is being poured out. Look at this. And that family member or this person in church. But after you've spoken to them three times and prayed with them three times, you see, okay, there's the single thing that just dominates every conversation. It just dominates all of the prayer. Lord, give. Lord, restore. Lord, bring back. They are here because they want God to fix something. They want God to restore something. It's not going that well at work. I've been demoted or maybe lost my work. The marriage is busy failing. Someone's sick. And we've done everything. And now the only thing we can do is pray. And we're going to put some coins in this vending machine and hopefully we get that packet of chips. And the moment the marriage is either restored or the person is gone for good, the moment the job application comes again, the moment the sickness is gone, the person disappears. Thank you, God. I came and I received. And I will call upon you again if needed. And many times that's us. We've seen it many times. And we've maybe been there many times. But not to feel too condemned this morning. We all initially draw near with sinful hearts. We all initially draw near with bad intentions. Our repentance isn't as pure as we many times hope it to be. But just to explain this from Luke chapter 6, verse 45, a passage of Scripture that we all know well. And it says the following, The good person out of the good treasures of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasures produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And this is what we speak to God and what we speak to men. It's what we pray about. It's what we talk about. It's what's in our hearts. So beautifully said this morning as well from James 4, verse 2 and 3. You don't receive because you don't pray. It's also a very revealing thing when there's no prayer going on. And when you ask, you also don't receive because you ask to spend it on your own passions. It's not a pure heart drawing near. It's not a seeking God. It's seeking the things that God can give us. But out of our hearts will flow what's going on in there. That's why evangelism is supposed to come so naturally. Because, man, we're full of Christ. It doesn't matter where we go. It's what comes out. It's the love of Jesus. And many of us, I, I remember once, and I understand, obviously, there's introverts and there's extroverts. But also to remember this, you know, many times we have a, a statement that we make. We say, it's, it's only human. It is menslik. But what is human? What is menslik? It is fallen, sinful, selfish. That's human. Human is not what it's supposed to be. Amen? Not since Genesis 3. Maybe before that. But fallen, sinful, selfish. So yes, it's human. But human is not what it's supposed to be. And we say, no, he's introverted and all of that. And, and just to know that we will always rather choose the justification than be confronted with the reality of our hearts. That's what we do. 
If I can choose an excuse or be confronted with the real reality of what's going on inside, man, I'll choose that justification every day. But I remember once we were at a school ministering to the youth, and they said that that day there's a, a person coming to speak there, a guest speaker. And as I was entering the school, a person came walking out, and as he came walking past me, I thought to myself, wow. That's the most introverted person that I've seen in my life. His whole body language, everything's just shying away, and he's kind of looking down and greeting very softly. And I thought, wow, that, that's a shy guy. And I go into the school, and we prepare everything, and here the speaker comes, and it's that man. <laughs> and he tells his story of what happened and what he's been through in life and how God saved him. And he said, it has this burning passion in his heart just to make Jesus known. And for like two weeks, he went out, into the streets, and he just couldn't say anything as the people started to walk past, but eventually he just came out. And from that day, he just continued to proclaim the name of Jesus. He's a full-time evangelist, that shy guy. He just does that every day. If it's in there, it doesn't matter how introverted you are, it's going to come out. It's going to come out. And we've spoken to people that have a lot of things in their heart. Business, finances, rugby, You speak to them, it will come out. You don't have to force them. They'll do it themselves. In every situation, every circumstance, they just speak because that is what's in their hearts. Now, many times maybe someone comes to correct us or we go to correct someone and we have this conversation and at the end they say, but you don't know what's in my heart. Like I've been listening to you for an hour. I have a pretty good idea. You see, we don't wear our hearts on our sleeves. We wear them on our lips. And some of us are thinking, wow, shucks, I wonder what I've said the last while. And I'm thinking about maybe what people picked up. But we also live in a culture that's so self-focused that most people don't listen, so don't worry. And you're like kind of relief. Oh, wow, that's true. You know, it's always so funny. When you say, you know, how someone prays and what he prays about really reveals something about someone's heart. And then you say, okay, cool, let's pray together. And then all of a sudden, the other person's like, okay, now I must, now I must pay attention. And there's all of a sudden almighty and holy and different words in that prayer that you've never heard before. But now we speak and look a little bit different. But maybe to give us a couple of examples, when it comes to desires, the things that we really want. If there's something in your prayer life that you pray for most, why? Because you really want that thing. It's as simple as that. It's what it reveals about your heart. And for the singles, also pay attention here. If you are praying more for your husband or for your wife than for your intimacy with God, then you're not moving towards a dangerous place. You are at a dangerous place. And when that person comes, it'll be idolatry. If that dominates everything now, it will dominate everything then. But God is called to fill that void. And what are you praying for most? It's what you desire. And maybe you look back at your life and you saw that there was a certain time that I really play, prayed a lot. Why? Because I wanted that thing. It was the thing I prayed for. And then I received it. And I pray now a little less. Because I got the thing that I wanted. And the beautiful thing about God is that we'll never know everything. There'll always be more to discover. There'll always be a deeper intimacy, deeper relationship. So if He's the constant, the prayer life will increase all the more. It will increase all the more. Trust, faith, and dependence. It's an area where I'm the most convicted in my prayer life. If I have to preach that Sunday, man, I pray a little bit more. Because now I'm dependent upon God. And what I'm saying is, Lord, that if I do not have to minister in front of people, the other stuff I'll kind of do on my own. I, I, I have that. I'll do that one on my own. But now I have to minister and speak about people, and I have to be faithful to the text. Lord, Lord, come help me. It's an area of dependence. It's an area of faith. For some of us, the longer we've worked in that specific position at work, the less we began to pray because, hey, we kind of got, we have it now. We have this thing figured out. No more dependence upon God. 
to come and do a specific work. It also shows us the things that we love and care for. Now to get a bit real convicting. If we truly believe that God works through prayer and you really love your wife, what are you going to do? You're going to pray for your wife. If you really love your kids and you believe God works through prayer, what are you going to do? You're going to pray for your kids. So if I don't pray for my wife, if I don't pray for my kids, I either believe that God doesn't work through prayer or I don't care for them as much as I think. And again, it's a revealing thing and we'll choose the justification. Man, but you don't know how busy I am. Man, I want to pray, but I'm just too busy. If we are too busy to pray, then we believe that we can do things better than God can. If I take 10 minutes of my effort and pray and ask God to bring His effort, man, I'll I'll be worse off. So I think I can do it a little bit better. Martin Luther said, I have so much to do today that I at least have to spend three hours in prayer. Because God is the one that leads, guides, gives wisdom. You're busy building His kingdom. After all, very convicting thing when we look at the content of our prayer lives and what's truly going on in our hearts. The willingness to love well when it comes to our marriages, our children, the things that we do. And now you're faced with, well, shucks, which one do I choose? And I'm going to say I don't believe God works through prayer. I'm going to say I don't care for my family that much. Man, choices, choices, difficult, difficult. But nonetheless, it reveals those things of our hearts. Or maybe we believe we can do it in our own strength. If I believe God works through prayer and I care for my wife and I still don't pray, maybe I just believe that this one, I've, I've got this one. We can do this kind of on our own. We don't need that much help. Also, public versus private, prayer life. If you pray more in public than you do in private, you have a problem. You're not headed towards a problem. You're there already. If it sounds different when you pray in public than you do in private, you have a problem. Many people, when we pray, we kind of tend to get, you know, that emotional voice and something, you know, shifts a little bit. I sound a little bit stranger than I do sometimes. You know what we call that when our children do that? It's manipulation. God is not manipulated. He sees the real world. So we can change our voice if we want to. We can sound a little bit more emotional. I'm not saying we don't get emotional when we pray. I'm saying that if we somehow do that ourselves. So the Difficult, difficult thing. Same true with our worship. If the most worship that's going to happen this week just happened right now, in a dangerous place, it reveals something about our heart. What does it reveal? We are living for the praise of people, not for the acceptance of God. Because otherwise we'd pray more private and we'd worship more private. The way we pray and worship... If you worship with your hands in your ear at the Sunday service, hopefully you're doing that tomorrow morning in your quiet time as well. Otherwise we're living for the approval of people, not for the acceptance of God. So that takes us to the first point, the only uncomfortable one this morning. Sanctification of the heart. Prayer reveals our hearts. Prayer reveals our hearts. And there's this beautiful illustration can't remember, I think it was in the 1900s, about people wanting to take prayer out of schools in America. And I can't remember who said it, but the guy said, no, that will be impossible. As long as there are math tests in school, there will be prayer <laughs> in schools. Now that's the, that's the revealing of the heart. When that math test comes and you look at it, you better believe we're going to say, Lord Jesus, help. Lord, just this time, next time, I promise. (laughs) If you just carry me through this one, I promise next time, I will study. Amen? If the pressing and the crushing comes, you better believe people are going to start to pray. Same with World War II. 
the believers going in initially with the confidence and the peace and the people asking them, hey, what's wrong with you guys? And then I'm saying, no, we're not scared of death. Death for the Christian is a benefit of war. One of the benefits of war is death for a Christian. Because then we get to go home. Amen. And obviously they were teased and mocked a lot, but the reports came back when the bombs started dropping, even the atheists prayed, Lord help. We also are going to give a rub at this lamp now. <laughs> because my life is in danger. If it helps, best believe we're going to pray. And it reveals our hearts, same as it did with the Israelites. When the pressing comes, when the crushing comes, they cry out. And all that that first cry initially does is it reveals, man, we are not where we should be. And if we are honest with ourselves, many of us have realized at this moment... If through all of this you saw, no, my heart's actually pure and I'm following God sincerely in prayer, you better thank God. Because that's also only by the grace of God. But if we realize now that, shucks, man, there's a, there's a bit of a problem. This isn't a pure heart. This isn't a whole heart. That's fully surrendered to God, that's simply seeking God. Man, there's a bunch of stuff that I want. There's a lot of unrighteousness in my heart. And now we reflect on Scripture and maybe 1 Peter comes to mind. And we think, shucks, 1 Peter 3 verse 12. God listens to the prayer of the righteous, but His face is hidden from the unrighteous. Unrighteous prayer God will not listen to. We think about Psalm 24. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And what I've just seen is, man, it's not pure. And if we don't look through the lens of the gospel, we might conclude, we might as well just stop. We might as well just stop praying, because how on earth will God listen to this heart of mine? How is it going to be pleasing? How is it going to be accepting in His sight? If I just saw what's actually inside. And again, like I said, don't worry, because all of us draw near with a sinful heart initially. And if it's not our own sin that causes the chaos, God's love will. God's love will. God lovingly will bring the storm so that we call out. Sinfully, yes. But it's through that continuous sinful heart that cries out to God that the refining comes. And God does a work. We see it here in Zechariah as well. It's a beautiful thing, God restating what He said, the purpose that He wants to achieve in Jeremiah 29. 20 years back, and it says the following, Zechariah 13, verse 8 and 9. It says, It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it, and I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. And look at the result again. They will call on my name. And I will answer them, and I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. God out of love, sending the fire again, so that they call on His name again, so that the refining comes again, so that there's purity in worship again. And many times, you know, the enemy wants to come alive, but I think you almost did, you know, the, why is there suffering, why is there pain, if God is good? we see that it's the love of God manifesting most of the time. Because what if the fire never came and we never called on His name? Then we would not have passed through the temporal fire, but into the eternal one. And that would not be very loving. But the most loving, gracious thing that God can do is to remove all that we have, so that we can see what we have in Christ alone. And we say, Lord, thank you for that like Louis prayed, Lord, come and shake if we are not awake. Come and shake, come and let everything fall away. But by your love, Lord, cause us to see. No matter how much it takes, no matter how much needs to be taken away, but the best thing for me is that I can see what I have in Christ alone. And again, this message repeats through the whole of the Old Testament. God said the exact same thing in Jeremiah 24. Verse 6 and 7, I think. It's not on the board, but you can go and read that. He gives the reason why he's sending them into exile. What he wants to accomplish. And he also says, I will purify them. 
I will allow this to happen and they will again call upon me and I will call them my people and they will call me my God. And they will return to me with a whole heart or wholeheartedly. That's the reason why the fire comes. It's the reason why I'm sending this across their paths. Because even if we draw near with a sinful heart, we are drawing near to the one who refines. Amen. So I'm drawing near to God, but for the wrong reasons, but I cannot help but as I draw near to be refined. As Malachi 3 verse 2 says, our God is a refining fire. He's a foulest soap. He will wash us clean. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, well-known passage. As we behold the glory of God, as in a mirror, veils removed, we are being transformed to the same image. From glory to glory, this comes through the Lord, who is the Spirit. There's no drawing close to God without being refined, without being transformed. Because look at what happens as we draw near with sinful hearts. 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David knew this after his cycle of sin with Bathsheba. Psalm 51 verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Isn't this just beautiful? And the enemy wants to come and sell the lie that, hey, look at your heart. You better go sort that out before you come to God. Otherwise, you won't answer and listen to your prayers. The gospel says we can do that. That's why Jesus came. As C.H. Spurgeon said it so beautifully, holiness is not the way to Christ. Christ is the way to holiness. We cannot make ourselves holy to approach God, but it's as we approach God that we become holy. I take us to point number two this morning. Prayer refines our hearts. Prayer refines our hearts. And hopefully something drops here this morning. This is the beautiful message of the gospel. That because God is holy and sinless and almighty and completely other, He says, I cannot listen to the prayers of sinful people. I cannot listen to the prayers of the unrighteous. So what? Is going to happen. What will a loving yet holy God do? He sends His perfect Son to die in our place so that when unrighteous men call upon His name, He can make them holy so that He can listen to their prayers. Isn't that beautiful? Because of Christ. Like Louis said, that's how we enter the veil. Because of Christ. Hebrews 10 verse 19, enter to the new and living way. That is Jesus. And then as it explains the high priestly work of Christ on the cross, it gives us three let us then statements. The first one in verse 22 is what? Let us then draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Not a pure heart, because we don't have one, but a true heart. Lord, thanks to what Jesus has done, this is what I'm bringing to you, heart. And it's by no means pure, but it's true. And I pray, create in me, Lord, a clean heart. And thanks to Jesus, when sinful men call upon his name, he makes them holy so that he can listen to their prayers. Isn't that beautiful? The psalmist writes in Psalm 116 verse 2, Because he inclines his ear to me, I will call upon him as long as I live. The thought of God stopping to bend down and listen when I speak, thanks to Christ, that alone will cause me to call upon his name as long as I live. But just think about that. Because of Jesus. And not defined by whether God acts and does the thing that I ask Him to do. No, because of the confidence of Christ and what He has done for me. I know that God listens. Isn't that beautiful? That is the work of the gospel. But again, before we leave it just here, we have to ask one more question. And that is, how will we know how will we know if our hearts are refined? Because we justify ourselves easily, because we are deceived easily, Scripture luckily doesn't allow us to do that. It defines it a little bit more. How will we know if our hearts are refined through prayer? What is the outflow of a righteous heart? That is a righteous life. From a pure heart flows pure deeds. From a transformed heart flows a transformed life. It has to align with one another. 
You want to give us two examples? The first one, Ezekiel 36, speaking about initial regeneration, salvation. Verse 26 and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from the flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Heart that feels, heart that loves, heart of compassion. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Be careful to obey my rules. That's the effect of a heart that changes. That's the effect of renewal of the heart. It is to walk in God's ways. Something that God does. As He refines, as He renews, the outflow is visible in our lives. So beautiful, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, look, see, the new has come. Something has changed. It's not the same person anymore. And this is initial and it will continue right through our journey with God. As He refines the heart, the actions will follow. And I give us one practical example found in Matthew 9. It's also so beautifully shared this morning. Matthew 9, verse 36 and 38. And when He saw the crowds, He had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. That is the heart of flesh. That is the heart that feels, that loves, that has compassion. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And what happens after the twelve goes and prays for the harvest? What happens as these twelve men go and say, Lord, send out laborers into the harvest field? Who gets sent out? They do. They do. They are the ones that get sent out. And many times I believe the reason why we see such a lack of evangelistic effort in the church is because we want to go instead of pray. The initial response to the magnitude of the harvest is not to go but to pray. Why? So that God can refine the heart so that what we do can actually be lasting and not temporal. But many of us experience this temporal bursts of evangelism. Okay, I've heard it again. I don't really want to, but hey, let's give it a go again. Or that kind of false expectation, tomorrow the whole work's going to be saved. I don't know if you've ever been there. Everybody. We're bringing all of them. And then we go. And the difference is, one is a temporal expedition based upon the wisdom of men. The other one is an eternal fruit because God refined the heart. It doesn't matter how much backlash, how much persecution we face, we keep on. Why? Because the heart has been refined. That's what happened to the apostles. That's why Paul could write in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14 that the love of Christ compels us. Speaking about the ministry of reconciliation. That's why we continue. Even after we are beaten and shipwrecked and starving to death. Why? Because the heart has been refined. And it just flows out naturally. That takes us to the last point this morning. Prayer compels our hearts to action. Prayer reveals our hearts. Prayer refines our hearts. And prayer compels our hearts to action. We see many times in the church, and I've, I've heard this before, and to some of you it might seem foreign, but people actually come and they say, listen, they just want to inform me that they're going to stay away from church and small group for a while. They've just been feeling that they are called to Jesus' feet for a season. To just be with God. To which I respond, that must have been just after you fasted prayer and, and uh, reading the word. Which is just a joke. But I, I'm honest, people come up with these things. We're going to stop serving, we're going to stop going out, we're going to stop doing a lot of things because just, God just wants us to sit at His feet. And that is a contradiction of Scripture. Out of the presence of God, the sending will always come. Everywhere in Scripture, when people are confronted with the presence of God, in Isaiah 6, what, what, what happens? Who will go for us? Who will we send? John in the island of Patmos, write this down to the twelve apostles, follow me. But from the presence of God, the sending always comes. And when there's no sending, if our hearts are not compelled to action, we are not sitting at the feet of Jesus. We can know that for sure. John 10, speaking about the sheep, Jesus says, When I call my sheep by name and they hear my voice, that's verse 3. That's initial salvation. Something happened, my sheep hear my voice. 
And then after I've brought out all my own, verse 4, I go out before them and they follow me, for they know my voice. There's a shift from hearing to knowing, but the action is always there. Now they follow me. The call to the disciples wasn't come and look at me. It was come follow me. And in today's Christianity, we laugh, but that's what kind of happens. I've been following Jesus now. What did you do now? I grabbed the chin. I'm sitting and I'm watching. Jesus said, no, follow me. Follow me. A heart that draws near to God is refined, and that heart is always compelled to action. Our hearts define the way we live. The desires of our hearts dictate what we do in life. And if it's been refined by God to love Him and to love those around us, we will constantly be busy building the kingdom. Amen? So what are we to do? But to examine our prayer lives. And if we see that there's a good thing that's out of order, our husbands, our wives, our jobs, whatever the case might be, those good things, but they're supposed to come after God. And if we see that they are before, we put them back into place. How? By saying, this time I will do it on my own. No. You say, Lord, help. Lord Jesus, help. Again, when Jesus says he's sending the Holy Spirit, Allos Parakleitos, another helper, what does that imply? We need help. Stop doing it on your own. But the helper is here. To say, Lord, help. Lord, this is my heart. I see what's going on. Lord, help. Lord, come and refine. And come and cause in us an internal change that leads to eternal fruit as we pursue you eternally. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.